The American dream is a term that is often used but often misunderstood. It really isn't about becoming rich and famous. It's about things much simpler and fundamental than that. Dorothy Dandridge Chapter 13 At the outset of our 30s, we, the former nannies, while ascending the career ladder, found our personal lives lagging. Polly found her male peers juvenile, emotionally immature and adolescent in their delight at attaining useless things. Darla made a three-year, $9 million TV development deal and found all her male dinner companions and prospective bedmates were really not so very interested in her, but in her willingness to read their scripts and laugh at their desperate jokes. Jane fared slightly better in an academic setting. At least university men professed to a belief in gender equality and a need for sensitivity in human relations. In practice, not so much. Through it all, we had each other, and our slightly older, been-there-done-that friend Natalie. She supported the theory that men cratered into depression at the end of a relationship and lay there, like a frog pithed through the skull at rock bottom, because they didn't tend their networks, unlike women. Women banded together with their friends and discussed what went wrong. Women threw each other back into the dating pond, providing physical backup, advising sparkling attitude, and suggesting the advantageous lure of lingerie. Jane, going with the fishing metaphor, said, You gotta set the hook and reel them in slow. But then there was me. I was an outlier, a widow who seemed to scare men, as Darla said, shitless. She took the opportunity to expand on this train of thought on an evening when they were gathered for drinks, without me. She continued, She's just so posh, a solid gold ten to their miserable piss-poor fives. Polly concurred. They can't handle basking in somebody else's limelight. Jane wondered. Maybe it's because she has a kid and they wouldn't be the main focus of her attention. Natalie said simply, Men aren't total fools. You can see she's not emotionally available a mile away. Yes, Natalie was the kind of woman who could use the phrase emotionally available in all sincerity and with a straight face. This provoked another 15-minute go-around, which Natalie concluded by informing the gals that I was carrying a torch for Cooper Daniels, married Cooper Daniels, who likely had no use for my torch as his life was bright and warm enough. Or so it seemed. Jesus, exclaimed Darla. She tossed her hair back with one hand and reached for the tab with another and hollered something, so loudly our friends winced, about an ass-smackin' bumpy landing after a margarine-slicked rainbow ride on the prick-paved road of life. The bartender laughed, and the men who turned to see who had the potty mouth with the Irish lilt forgave everything when they saw willowy, green-eyed Darla. What are you looking at, you bastards? Buy us another round! People, men in particular, had a, well, they had a habit of doing as Darla said. Then, although I had been barely three months in mourning, the matchmaking began. Jane's candidate for my favor was a 30-year-old full professor who could talk endlessly about artificial intelligence and had the table manners of a baboon. I referred to our meeting at a coffee shop in a bookstore near the university in Westwood as 
regrettable. He may have been a genius, but he spat cookie crumbs as he spoke, which covered the front of his shirt and the lacquered tabletop. One effusion even reached my cup. Staring at the chunky remains of the professor's peanut butter cookie floating in my cappuccino, my stomach turned, and not in a way that signaled sexual attraction. Polly's choice for me was a dapper 49-year-old legal partner who had argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. He arrived on my doorstep wearing a slim-fitting Italian suit. He had an expensive tan and a barber's shave. At least he looked more than presentable, but when he escorted me out to his brand new Porsche, a little alarm went off in my head. Midlife crisis? He took me to City Restaurant on La Brea, a huge white lofty space with a partially glassed-in kitchen, and tried to impress me by holding forth on the proper way to prepare vindaloo curry. He paid a fetishist's attention to the food and wine and offered a lot of unsolicited advice on the handling of my estate. I was further unnerved by his efforts to maintain eye contact. My lasting impression of the attorney was that he spent our entire rendezvous staring at the top of my right ear. I expected to tell my friends all about it the following weekend, but that Wednesday the Rodney King verdict was handed down and the results of that verdict erupted on the streets. About the acquittal. Four white LAPD officers had relentlessly beaten a black man following a car chase. An amateur video of the brutality, 81 seconds long, was bashed into the minds of anyone with a TV. And even so, a jury that April 29th delivered a verdict the mayor called senseless. I'm in shock. These guys are as guilty as homemade sin. Nate Holden, LA City Council member. This is a brutalization of truth. That's the tragedy of America. Reverend Cecil Murray, First AME Church. My first inkling of the unrest came by way of Cooper. It was in the afternoon. He'd been on the west side at his agent's, not far from me, and in his car, listening to the radio, he found himself driving to my place instead of his own home and his pregnant wife. Things are going down, Billy, he said. He questioned if I had everything I needed, to which I responded, perplexed, of course I did. Lingering, he frowned. Just be careful, okay? I'm sure there's nothing to worry about, but this feels like a big deal. I walked him out to his car. His camera was sitting on the passenger seat. My heart started to pound as I remembered his background. Cooper, you're not going downtown. You're not going to the courthouse to shoot this, are you? How many people are there? Mm, Couple of hundred, maybe. The mayor's going to make a statement. I don't think I'm the one who needs to be careful. Cooper reached into the car and put the lens cap back on his camera. Happy? Just call me when you get home, okay? He forgot to call. By Wednesday evening, Los Angeles started to burn. Police retreated in South Central, and when Reginald Denny was yanked from the cab of his truck, kicked, robbed, and struck on the head with a fire extinguisher, the LAPD was elsewhere. The man who rescued Denny was Bobby Green, a black man, 
who saw the attack on TV and rushed to the corner, where, with the help of two others, he drove the truck away from Florence and Normandy and took Denny to the hospital. People were shot and murdered. Stores were torched and looted. The local channels broadcast it live. Smoke hung in the air, and a tactical alert vibrated through the night. In Los Angeles, in the remove of Beverly Hills, Bob Brown, who had been watching the news first from his office at uh, studio name redacted, and then from the den of his home, decided to cancel his poker game. He flipped through his Rolodex, and seeing Mr. Booker live just a couple of blocks away, he walked over to our place. What he saw there reminded him of a night at home, when home was a place where Evelyn lived, making things appear effortlessly elegant. When Natalie was young, beamingly happy and forever presenting him with report cards or singing him her garbled renditions of everything she had heard on the radio, he had suggested to his wife, not with a little worry, that Natalie should see an audiologist. Her interpretations of the top ten were so cheerfully, comically outlandish. Evelyn said, Of course they are, honey. She's eight. When Natalie was twelve, the Watts riots broke out. At the time he was making his ascent up the executive ladder, Evelyn was raising funds for the cause of voters' rights, and his child would precociously announce the news on his arrival home from the studio which in August of 1965 included race relations, guerrilla tactics, and casualties. Bob, who was a paper boy by the age of 12, remembered the headlines about the Zoot Suit riots of 1943 that referenced warfare and front. In April of 1992, at this home down the street from his, it was so damn peaceful. Was it Mr. Booker or me who provided the calm? There wasn't a TV or radio to be heard in the house. I invited Bob Brown to help Mr. Booker, myself, and Jake finalize a set of potato prints and bright egg tempera on huge sheets of newsprint spread on the kitchen table. When the project was over, we all washed our hands and sat at the dining room table for supper. In retrospect, I must have fascinated him, for I embodied something of a paradox. My focus was so extreme, it obscured the actual, or what I didn't even want to contemplate as the actual. For, while I should have been focused on a multitude of things, what kept repeating and repeating in my mind was, why hasn't Cooper called? After supper, Jake brought his rabbits to Bob to proudly show him the culprits who had chewed through stereo wires. Then my son pointed out how every electrical cord in the house was shielded because the rabbit's gnawing was boundless, and an, uh, a huge 110-amp shock was no deterrent. After Jake had gone to bed, the television came on and conversation turned. But for a few hours, Mr. Booker and I had tuned out the world, creating our own quiet reality. And for that Mr. Brown was both baffled and grateful. As the news went on, Bob Brown became silent. He sunk into his chair. Mr. Booker, noting his friend's fixed look and clenched jaw, shut off the TV. Mr. Brown said, Thank you, Billy. He stood and shook hands with Mr. Booker. I have some calls. Good night. 
He paused and glanced back at the television. If anything comes up, you let me know. And thanks again. At 8.45, a state of emergency was instituted, and within moments, the National Guard was called in. I knew Parker Center, the LAPD headquarters, was barricaded and violent. The 101 freeway downtown was closed, and I wasn't altogether sure where Cooper was, but I kept telling myself he was home. I was worried about an idiot who should have called me and instead of racing to his wife's side had come to mine. Only to reveal his instinct was to drive into trouble and document it. At 11 o'clock, I picked up the phone. Patience answered, sounding indifferent, and immediately handed the phone over to Cooper. Just, just checking to make sure you made it home okay. Oh, Billy, I'm sorry. Yeah, everything's great. He sounded peculiar. I didn't press, and after a little more chit-chat, we said goodnight. Shortly after midnight, Mayor Bradley set a curfew, and I walked across the hall from my bedroom to check on Jake. I recalled an image from the TV. A black minister, Benny Newton, defying the chaos, stood protectively in front of a body crumpled on the pavement, one hand raised before him, palm out as if trying to fend off further harm. The other hand held a Bible. Watching my son sleep, I thought of highly paid movie stars, the industry that churned out billions based on their presence, and an ingratiating police force, long curved streets lined with gracious homes where nobody talked to their neighbors, except I just had. My neighbor was one of the most powerful players in Hollywood who, when he had left our house, was near tears. My hand against the door jamb, I could only think, how the hell did we end up here? The day after the riots began, April 30th, Bob Brown locked the gates to his studio. Offices and businesses were shuttered. Buses didn't run. Schools were closed. On May 1st, Rodney King made a statement. President Bush addressed the nation, and federal troops joined the National Guard and the LAPD on the streets of the city. The rage and despair went on for five days. Who's to say it ever really stopped? Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.